never sung that song. It's a great song. I would encourage you, if you're not familiar with it, take some time just to get it out and uh, read through it and focus on the message of saved by grace alone. What a message. I invite you to join me in 1 Samuel 25, if you're not there already. 1 Samuel 25. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening we rejoice. For even as we have just confessed in song, we are saved by grace alone. This is all my plea. Jesus died for all mankind. And Jesus died for me. Even when I was still in my sin, Jesus died for me. What glorious truth in the gospel, Heavenly Father. What hope is ours. Even in this hour, as we turn our attention to this passage, Lord, guide our hearts and our minds. Give us insight as we focus on your word, Lord. Draw our minds to things above. We confess our need. Lord, we come this evening totally dependent on you, on that very grace of which we have just sung. And yet we come in Christ, boldly, by grace alone. So Heavenly Father, work in us through your word this evening. Accomplish your purpose for your glory. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, the Cold War was the open yet restricted rivalry that developed after World War II between the United States and the Soviet Union and their respective allies. The Cold War was waged on political, economic, and propaganda fronts and had only limited recourse to weapons. The Cold War stretched from 1947 until the resignation of Mikhail Gorbachev and the dissolution of the Soviet Union on December 26, 1991. At the height of the Cold War, the world's greatest fear almost came true. As a result of a 13-day political and military standoff that came to be known as the Cuban Missile Crisis. The crisis arose in 1962 as the U.S. military became aware of nuclear-armed missiles that the Soviet Union had installed just 90 miles off the U.S. coast on the island of Cuba. In response, President John F. Kennedy ordered a naval blockade of Cuba with the promise of military force if the missiles were not moved. Finally, After 13 long and intense days on the edge of nuclear war, the U.S. and Soviet Union came to an agreement in the de-escalation of the situation. The Soviet Union would remove the missiles, and the U.S. would agree not to invade Cuba, as well as a secret agreement that the U.S. would remove missiles that they had positioned in Turkey. The Cuban Missile Crisis has become infamous 
as the closest that the world has ever come to nuclear war. In fact, it's terrifying to stop and think of what might have been. In fact, even in that moment, what was probably likely to happen. What was so close to actually being. It was truly almost disastrous. Yet by the grace of God, cooler heads prevailed. As we turn our attention to 1 Samuel 25 this evening, we see another almost disaster. And yet, once again, by the grace of God, cooler heads prevail. This evening we'll see the foolishness of men, the wisdom of a woman, and the goodness of God. The first thing we see is the foolishness of men. Foolish men. Kids, if you are taking notes on your kids' notes, um, on each slide I've tried to highlight and italicize the word that you need to fill in so you can follow along. 1 Samuel 25, 1-13, foolish men. First Samuel 25 begins with the news that Samuel has died. It's really the end of an era. Samuel, the last judge of Israel, has died. Israel has now entered the era of kings. And yet another thing that this tells us is that Samuel, perhaps David's greatest ally, has passed away. You can imagine how this affects David as he is now unsure of what the future looks like. In fact, he leaves, it tells us, and he arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. But then the attention shifts to a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. This man, his name is Nabal. We're told that his wife Abigail is beautiful and of good understanding. Yet he is described as harsh and evil in his doings. A reality that we will come to see as we work our way through 1 Samuel 25. He was of the house of Caleb. We see it thrown in there at the end of verse 3. It almost adds to the suspense here. Being a descendant of Caleb, the faithful spy who had served alongside Joshua, there's almost a, high, a heightened expectation of maybe Nabal will be good. Maybe he will act just. Yet that's not what we find. Rather, in verse 4, we find Nabal shearing his sheep. Apparently this was a time of celebration, of food and water would have been plentiful. David, understanding what is going on, sends his men to go to Nabal. You see, there's been a bit of a history here, as we're told in this chapter, as we read earlier. As Nabal's men were off watching the sheep away from where Nabal was, David and his men were in the area. And David and his men, rather than taking from the flock... Rather than attacking them, had protected them. They had taken care of them, made sure that not one sheep went missing. So now David in need reaches out to Nabal. His men need provisions. 
And on this feast day, as he is shearing his sheep, provisions are plentiful. And notice that it's a simple request in verse 8. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servant and to your son, David. It's not outlandish. In fact, David isn't even really detailed in it. He just says, can you give me something? My men need provisions. He's really leaving it up to Nabal to provide, to give what he wants. Hoping that he will respond positively to how well his men have been treated. Yet, as we see in this chapter, that is not the response. In fact, not only does Nabal refuse David's request, but he really even mocks and offends David in response. He responds, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? He's a nobody. It's clear that he knows who David is. He's the son of Jesse. He knows even what family he's from. He knows exactly what he's doing here. He knows exactly who this is. Yet he refuses. In fact, he lumps David in with criminals and runaways. There are many servants nowadays who break each from his own master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers? Meat that he would not have had had David not cared for his sheep. And I give it to men that do not know where they are from. Again, purposeful ignorance here. David had even told him, ask your men and they will tell you. His men return. And David, as you can imagine, is disappointed. In fact, he's more than disappointed. He is offended. Note his response in verse 13. Every man gird on his sword. Now, if you're reading this passage and, and you get to that point and, and you can see where David's offense comes from, right? I mean, Nabal should have responded differently. David had cared for his sheep, his flock, his men. But gird on his sword. David's going to war over this? Really, what we see here is a very foolish and a rash response. Nabal was, was wrong to respond in the way that he did, but David is just as wrong in his response. Every man gird on his sword. About 400 men went with David. I mean, this is shockingly rash and revenge-fueled. And it's extra shocking because of the context in which we find it. In chapter 24, David had just shown so much restraint and mercy on Saul. Do you remember that? We were there a few weeks ago. As David on the run from Saul, a man who was seeking his life. Is there any more offense than that? And yet in the cave, David sneaks up and he has a chance to take Saul's life. And yet he doesn't. He shows Restraint. He shows amazing faith. This is the man that God has in authority. If the Lord wants him, God, he will get rid of him. But I will submit to the Lord and his timeline. Amazing faith. 
Amazing restraint. And yet here, the same man who had shown so much wisdom and faith and restraint from holding his men back from killing Saul is overcome with revenge. And yet, we read this and and our hearts jump to judge David, and rightfully so, he is wrong. And yet in the mirror of this passage, I think we see ourselves. How often after a great victory do we have a hard fall? In fact, is that not one of the things that we just saw this morning, that our enemy is cunning? Are we any more prone to fall than after we have shown great faith? How prone we are in those moments to be lifted up with pride. (laughs) Look what I have done. I didn't fall for that trick. Even in saying that, you've already sinned. You've fallen for another one. Yet in the context, in spite of these two foolish men, we see now a wise woman. This is a situation that is spiraling out of control. In the first 13 verses, it is spiraling towards a massacre, a stain on David's reputation. The servant comes to Abigail, tells him what she has seen. In fact... The last point that we'll get to, we see a foolish man, a wise woman, the last point we'll get to is a good God. And we really see all that in the end of this chapter as David recounts, God has saved me from making this mistake through you. And yet we see even here God's goodness at work. Despite the foolishness of these men, the Lord is at work in the background to save David from himself. One of the young men told Abigail, The Lord gives this young man wisdom to perceive what is going on. He gives him boldness to approach Abigail instead of Nabal to point out the situation, what has happened. If this young man keeps this to himself, then nothing else that we see in the chapter happens and David comes and destroys Nabal and his men. The Lord and his goodness is at work. Even as David is off preparing his army, the Lord is at work even among the servants of Nabal and his wife, preparing to send her to save David from himself. This man recounts what has happened. Verse 17, Now therefore know and consider, talking to Abigail, what you will do, for harm is determined against our master, against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. Again, this speaks to Nabal's character. As we turn to this situation here in 1 Samuel 25, it's not just that we find Nabal on a bad day. Right? We've all had bad days. But we are just grumpy. That's not the situation. It's not just that Nabal's been found on a bad day. Nabal is simply a miserable man. 
Even back in verse 3, we saw that, do we not? Abigail, his wife, is good understanding, beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. I think there's another lesson for us in here. In verse 6, as David describes Nabal, before all this happens, as he sends his servants, he describes Nabal as a man who lives in prosperity. And yet the message of this chapter is clear that this man who lives in prosperity, who has everything that this world could offer, is a miserable man. There is no joy in things. This man has everything his heart could desire. He is rich. And yet he has no joy. He's simply a miserable man. Verse 18, Abigail jumps to action. She made haste and took 200 loaves. She is getting to action against the background of Nabal's unreasonable rejection and David's um, equally unreasonable response. Abigail stands out as abundantly wise. She gathers all of these things. She comes to her servants, go before me, see I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Some commentators will point to that and say, she's wrong in that. She should have told her husband. I don't know that we can say one way or the other. Scripture doesn't say. She's not condemned for it. I would tend to say that she is not in the wrong here. She's taking action behind her husband's back because if she does not, people are going to die and bad things are going to happen. And if she goes to him, she knows that he's going to forbid her. She's doing this for the good of her husband and for her family. We were just in Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 a couple weeks ago, looking at family relationships and the idea of a wife submitting to her husband. And I read a, a quote from a commentator uh, when I was doing that I think applies to this situation. This commentator noted that a Christian wife can stand with Christ against her husband with a humble, loving spirit that indicates her longing to honor his headship. I don't think this is a sign of rebellion inside of Abigail's heart. I think it's a sign of a woman who is standing with Christ against her husband. He is in the wrong. And she is doing what it takes to save lives and do the right thing. So she goes... And notice this in verse 21. She goes, she finds David's men. In verse 21, David had said, maybe at this time, right? There's been some time that has passed, all the time it takes Abigail to get this stuff together, to figure all this out, for David to get his army together. Maybe David in his heart, as he's sitting back, maybe he's realized that he's in the wrong. Maybe he's kind of calmed down. Right? If if you're like me, there's times where you just get really riled up and you, you react in a moment and then... As you sit down and you think about it for a second, you realize it's not, it's not that deep. This isn't that big of a deal. Yet that's exactly what we find not happening in David's heart. David is still fuming. Surely in vain I have protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him and he has repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. 
David's just running this over and over and over in his mind. And he is dead set on revenge. Verse 23, Abigail catches up to David. And here we see wisdom, not only in what Abigail does in seeking peace, but even in the way she goes about it. You can do the right thing in the wrong way. Verse 23 tells us, Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the the ground. Number one, she shows him honor. She shows David the respect that he so desires and that Nabal refused to give. Nabal pretends not to recognize David. Abigail recognizes him as God's anointed. She bows before him, showing him honor. On me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears. Not only does she show David honor, but she takes the blame. This is my fault. You say, well, how could this be her fault, right? This is between Nabal and David. Well, that's part of her explanation here. Let not my Lord regard the scoundrel Nabal, for he... For as is his name, so he is. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Again, this might sound like she's just throwing her husband under the bus. But the idea here is she's actually throwing herself under the bus. She's trying to explain to David, this is not an attack against just you. That's simply how he is. Everyone who knows him knows that he is simply foolish and mean and cruel. I've had to deal with this my whole life, so I should have seen your men, and I should have, had to step, I should have stepped in and remedied this, this situation as I have always done, but I missed it this time. I'm sorry, this is my fault. This is not an offense against you alone. It's simply who he is. He's a foolish man. So she shows honor to David. She takes the blame herself. Notice here, even in her, ble- in her pleading, she doesn't hold David as innocent. She doesn't come right out and accuse him. But she makes it clear that this is an overreaction. Verse 26, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, the Lord has done this. So then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. Now she's shown honor. She has taken the blame herself. And now she addresses the need that David's men has. This present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. Now having shown honor, having taken the blame, having addressed the need, now she puts the events in perspective. The Lord will certainly make for my Lord, she's still showing honor here, an enduring house. What she does here is draws David's mind back to the promises that God has made. Even as a man seeks your life, the Lord 
is watching out for you. David is bothering with something that he should not be bothering with. The Lord will provide for David. The Lord will protect David because the Lord has called David to the throne. Abigail here reminds him of this, going even into uh, verse 30 and 31. It shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel. She's reminding David of all that God has said. And in the context of this chapter, how encouraging that must have been to David. You have to wonder that at Samuel's death, if the question crossed David's mind, is God going to forget about me? Samuel's the one who anointed me. Samuel's the one who was kind of watching out for me. He's the one who was on my side. Now that he's gone, is God going to forget? Am I going to kind of fall by the wayside? Yet through Abigail, the Lord reminds David, I have not forgotten you. My promise still stands. Verse 31, this will be no grief to you nor offense of heart, my Lord. She's here putting all this in perspective. The Lord will call you to be king as he has promised. You will be king. And if you go on and make this mistake, this will be a spot on your reputation, a lifelong regret that the Lord has saved you from. Abigail here shows amazing faith, reminding David of God's promise, stopping him from doing something he will forget. Forget, regret. She brings perspective to David's revenge-fueled tunnel vision. Stop, David. See things rightly. See things in perspective. And really behind all of this is a call for David through this brave, wise woman to trust the Lord. Leave this in his hand, just like you did with Saul in that cave. Finally, in verse 32, we see a good God. We've already seen evidence of that throughout this chapter, have we not? And and the servant who approaches Abigail and Abigail's wisdom as she comes to David, the Lord is at work through these people, saving David from himself. And here, David recognizes that. He says to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day. The Lord is at work through you, Abigail. The sovereign hand of God has saved me from myself. Blessed is your advice and blessed are you because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left in Abel. When David received from her hand what she had brought him, said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. Earlier we noted David's pride, his anger, his hunger for revenge. And here it is good for us to also pause and note David's wise and humble response to Abigail. It's not that David's perfect. David makes mistakes. He's human, just as me and you. And yet note his humble response. 
He's not above seeking forgiveness. He knows that he was wrong in this. So he humbles himself. He responds rightly to Abigail. Verse 6, now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was holding a feast in his house. His heart was merry within him. He was drunk. She does not bring this up on this time because of the situation. But in the morning, when the wine had gone from Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that his heart died within him, he became like a stone. And it happened after about ten days that the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. In shock, he apparently suffers a stroke, and he's paralyzed until his death. Even here, notice the differences in responses. David responds humbly to the rebuke that the Lord brings through Abigail. Nabal responds in shock to the point where his heart has issues, where he suffers a stroke and he's paralyzed. David, in verse 39, recognizes the hand of God in this. David was seeking vengeance, and yet it's the Lord who brings vengeance. It's the Lord who protects his servants, even as Abigail had already reminded him. In the end of this chapter, David takes Abigail for his wife. So we see not only does the Lord provide provisions for David and his men, save David from himself, he delivers Abigail from her foolish husband, provides her with a good husband in David. The Lord has not only David, his big servants in mind, he's working even for the good of someone like Abigail. This brings up the issue of polygamy. And um, we know that David was already married to Michael, Saul's daughter. In the end of the chapter, we're told that Saul had taken her away and given her to this other man, Paltine. Um, but we're also told here that David has other wives. And that's not the point of this chapter, so I'm not going to dive into that, but I think it is important to note that although polygamy is never explicitly condemned in Scripture, its complications and unsavory results are everywhere apparent over and over and over again. The clear teaching of Scripture is one man and one woman. But as we come to the end of this chapter, there are several lessons for us in this story from David's life. And really, it's a chapter of warning for us, a call to to vigilance. The first lesson for us is to be aware I mean, just thinking back over this chapter, how is it that David, after such a great show of faith before King Saul, can be so foolish in response to one single wealthy man? Where is the self-control that David had just so powerfully displayed in chapter 24? Perhaps pride snuck in. You see, David is a great man by the grace of God, but he is simply a man sinful and prone to the same temptations that you and I face. Even as I mentioned earlier, one commentator notes, a small temptation is likely to prevail after a greater has been resisted. Our cunning adversary will not give up 
He will not let up. As A.W. Pink says in his excellent book, The Life of David, no man stands a moment longer than divine grace upholds him. So brothers and sisters, be aware. Don't for one second let your guard down. Your adversary will not give up, so you must not let up. Secondly, be forward-looking. As Abigail in this chapter churns David's eyes toward the fulfillment of God's promises, reminding him of what God is doing, so we must keep an eternal perspective. How we might act differently if we kept eternity in view. We know, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Praise the Lord, and yet at the same time, there may be no condemnation, but there is accountability. We will answer for our actions and reactions, as Romans 14, verses 10 to 12 tells us. And how might we act differently if we kept this judgment in our minds? If every action... We pause to think through, I will give an account of this before God one day. Rather than focusing on a bruised ego, let us focus on a day when our faith is made sight. So be aware, be forward-looking. Third, be gracious. Be gracious to others, for your heavenly Father has been abundantly gracious to you. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. When you recognize God's good, sovereign hand in every situation, you can overlook the offense of others. So submit to God's sovereignty. If David would have simply paused and recognize the sovereign hand of God even in this, maybe he's teaching me something, this whole thing could have been avoided. So submit to God's sovereignty. As Job so powerfully responds when he receives the worst possible news in Job 2.10, shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not also receive evil? Lord, give me that kind of faith. To see your sovereign hand in every situation, good and bad. And finally, be thankful. Be thankful for God's sovereign hand at work and be thankful and attentive to those who in a spirit of graciousness approach you in order to correct you. Be thankful for honesty and be humble enough to be correctable. We rejoice in this chapter that David responds in humility. That he sees where he has been wrong by the grace of God. May the Lord give us humility to see where we are wrong and to accept correction when it comes. We're going to close with the song Grace, hymn number 126. A good reminder for us, even as we think about this chapter, Lord, as I seek your guidance for the day, I find my thoughts unyielding. Confusion crowds my way. 
But then when I bow to you, even the challenges you guide me through, your promises are ever new. I claim them for today. Your will cannot lead me where your grace will not keep me. Your hand will protect me. I rest in your care. Your eyes will watch over me. Your love will forgive me. And when I am faltering, I still will find you there. Lord, give us faith. Let's stand together and sing grace.